I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and let's politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Dilloff. Uh, we've got a lot of Christmas traditions in my house. One of them being uh, watching Charlie Brown Christmas together as we eat some cookies. It's a, some really wholesome family stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. Charlie Brown Christmas is all about Charlie Brown being upset that he doesn't understand what the true meaning of Christmas is. And it's really funny, a great encapsulation, right. I think, of what we're going to talk about this week. You know, his friends and his sister, they're all like, oh, it's about getting presents. Santa should just send you money. And then at the very end, Linus uh, steps in and he uh, he he talks about um, the Magnificat, actually, not the not the good parts, but just how the angel comes to Mary and says that there's going to, you know, a child's going to be born. Uh, good tidings, peace and goodwill. And uh, Charlie Brown's like, wow, I finally get it. But today in this episode, we're going to talk about how Charlie Brown is dead wrong. Somebody that's in North America <laughs> <laughs> with a bourgeois mindset could never understand Christmas. <laughs> That's right. Uh, if only Charlie Brown had access to a library of historical critical studies on the political economy of ancient Roman Palestine, maybe then he could finally have figured it out. But, uh, you know, you can't blame him for not not getting there because uh, our whole culture is sort of designed to protect us from all the very challenging insights that you may get by knowing a thing or two about the kinds of situation that Christmas is uh, is dealing with or intervening in. And this week, we decided to talk through some of those uh, situations, some of the conditions, by looking at uh, some work by a guy named Richard A. Horsley, a super interesting Bible scholar uh, that we can say more about in a minute. He wrote a really cool book called The Liberation of Christmas, The Infancy Narratives in Social Context. And we're going to talk about the, uh, the last um, chapter of the book, uh, which is kind of about like how we read the Bible and also about Christmas. Um, it is a, a really neat, um, I don't know, general approach to kind of biblical hermeneutics. And our Bible episodes are surprisingly more popular than others, despite being not Bible guys ourselves. So once again, we're going to sort it out and uh, see how it goes. That's true. Not a Bible guy. Well, I'm an aspiring Bible guy. I would love to be more of one. And maybe that'll be a New Year's resolution to be more of a Bible guy. But it's always good to flex those like those those Bible muscles that I thought I've left behind with evangelicalism and kind of uh, and bring them back out. But uh, yeah, Dean, you used a word a minute ago, and that word was hermeneutics. And I think it's a really 
important word. Uh, it's going to be kind of at the center of the conversation that we have today about uh, the Christmas narrative. Um, well, the, the narrative that we use on Christmas around <laughs> the birth of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Hermeneutic is a pretty big word, and we should probably talk about what that means, maybe specifically and like discreetly <laughs> before we just ch- kind of jump into <laughs> using a bunch of big phrases. Um, so when we talk about hermeneutics, what we're talking about is uh, the big bag of strategies and structures of knowledge that we bring with us when we come to read something, you know, for the first time or for the 30th time, we're always bringing a big, a big bag of things to two texts. Um, whenever, you know, whenever you read even something like the Bible or anything, really, you're always kind of bringing your own experience to it. You're bringing your, your own, uh, structure of beliefs, um, things that you find important in the text, things that stick out to you, you know, more than others. We have these like strategies of um, interpretation, I think. And these strategies of interpretation are what we're talking about when we talk about hermeneutics. Um, so we we do like hermeneutics on this podcast all the time. Um, like whenever we read the Bible uh, and we emphasize something like James 5 and we make that like an orienting point for reading the gospel or reading other parts of the Bible, um, we're doing hermeneutics, right? We're implying a particular like, structure of what is most important in the text and what is like maybe less important in the text or you know when it comes to like acts two and we're talking about um christians living together after jesus ascends and they're living together in sort of a a proto-communist society or something and we emphasize that as being really important in the text that's also we're we're doing hermeneutics We're, we're building a particular way of reading the text that like gets us to a place that we want to go and that sounds kind of like um, crass or self-serving and it could be for sure. Um, but hermeneutics, you know, they, they're strategies that have like particular historical backgrounds to them and like how you might employ a historical background to bring out a meaning of the text is, um, a, a big part of how hermeneutics works. There are all kinds of hermeneutical strategies that we can bring to the Bible. Um, like if we wanted to emphasize only the historical part, you might talk about something called historical criticism, right? That is a hermeneutic strategy that emphasizes understanding the historical context that like a part of the Bible might've been written in. So, um, we did this a lot in, in the episode about, um, William Herzog's parables as subversive speech. Um, you know, to really understand what any of these parables mean, you have to know all of the political economic details of the Bible or of the gospels, right? That's like the, the assumption of that text. Um, and William Herzog is a really smart guy for sure. And he's, I think a pretty careful reader of the Bible (laughs) to say the very least. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that approach necessarily, but also you have to like, you know, you have to know that when even you're bringing like a super scientific or historical aspects to the Bible, you're probably going to also be bringing in like a lot of your modern sensibilities without you even knowing it. Like that's the kind of thing about hermeneutics is that there's always going to be like some of you in it, whether you like it or not. And you might glean some really important information and you might also miss some other themes. Yeah. I think uh, the other thing about that piece too, is that people are doing hermeneutics all the time, even if they don't think that they are or don't know that they are or don't admit that they are. So, you know, when your evangelical pastor is talking about Christmas and I don't know what, he or she will say about it, but, uh, you know, this is that thing. Um, you got to give your life to Christ, God's love of the world and so on and so forth. That person is also doing hermeneutics and we might not be Bible guys, but I would say we are hermeneutics guys, uh, <laughs> a thing that we both studied in, in graduate school. And the first thing that you know about hermeneutics so that you learn about it 
is that everybody's got one. And the best thing that you can do is just be honest about it and maybe even kind of playful with it. You can try on some other hermeneutical lenses. You know, for example, you could read the Bible with a kind of feminist uh, interpretation. You could look at the class structures in it. And every one of those hermeneutics, uh, all those strategies are going to kind of reveal some things and also obscure other things about a text. So I think the the best you can do is really just be upfront about it and be like, I'm doing a hermeneutic strategy or a hermeneutic reading in this specific way and just kind of see where it gets you. And that is the kind of thing that also sometimes gets us to interesting places and, again, kind of obscures these other more interesting readings. And that's where people like Herzog can be really helpful because their particular hermeneutic strategy is about trying to recreate or rebuild some of that historical context, not to be like, this is the only way to read a particular text, but in order to maybe inform other hermeneutic strategies or draw out different angles of things yeah. that maybe we'd miss. Yeah, that's good. Um, man, everybody has a hermeneutic is definitely true. And um, when your evangelical pastor says, the Bible's clear when it says this, uh, <laughs> then you know that they're, it's doubly hermeneutic. There's so much hermeneutic going on right there <laughs> and overabundance. Um, but uh, what you were saying a minute ago about the historical part of it is really good. There's a piece at the beginning of um, this Horsley uh, chapter that we read where he's talking about historical criticism is giving you some like, um, you know, like it, it lays out like what the playing the playing field of a particular text is that might be actually helpful. You know, like where you could read a particular biblical passage and you could like overly over spiritualize it or, you know, you could you could fit it into, um, you know, a particular situation that doesn't really make sense. Historical criticism is really helpful because it kind of gives you like the goalposts of um, a particular passage and tells you like maybe, you know, there's there are things that are open to interpretation and you can kind of fit it into different places. But uh, there are, you know, particular capacities. It can go only so far given the historical aspect. And I think that's always kind of fun. Um, there's also another, another part of it that I think I, I really like another part of the hermeneutic conversation that Horsley says I like is that, uh, the historical aspect sometimes gives it like an irritational value that it like, uh, it can rub you the wrong way because it's about something you don't understand, or it's about something more terse or, uh, contradictory than to the way that you might originally read it. So there's, there's some of that to it as well, which is, uh, I think the <laughs> definitely what we liked about William Herzog's, uh, parables of subversive speech uh it does rub you the wrong way because it's um you know circumventing all of the things that you thought you knew about the bible and telling you you're wrong it's pretty fun mm -hmm. yeah uh and i guess to lay out kind of a roadmap of this episode here um we you know we've talked about christmas a bunch of times on the show in the past uh usually right about now during advent we try to think of some interesting christmas stuff um, last year, or maybe two years ago, we did a, a bunch of episodes on the Gospel in Salentiname, for example, and kind of how these um, Nicaraguan peasants and activists and artists and so on were kind of reading uh, the, the Advent and Christmas stories in light of their own situation. And uh, in the past, we've done other stuff around Christmas, too, kind of seeing it as a, a cultural product or cultural phenomenon. What I think is really interesting about Horsley's stuff, and this is also similar to Herzog's work, is for him... Uh, getting the kind of historical details on the table is not a matter of being like, and here again is like the final way to read the text. But instead he tries to see it as uh, a way of kind of making the Bible uh, more available for contemporary struggles. So even though like, I think you're right, Matt, it's kind of about like setting up these goalposts or kind of like determining what the playing field is. 
it's also about being like, and then what can you sort of do with that? Like once you kind of have some confidence about what's happening and what Richard Horsley does with Christmas, which I think is really unique and very cool, is he tries to kind of lay out that uh, that playing field with respect to what's happening in the the infancy narratives. And a big kind of controlling idea that he has is that Christmas in North American societies especially is kind of like a mythologized fantasy world. And it's just like totally abstracted from any kind of reality, both the reality of the biblical text, but also the reality of our own kind of global economic situation. And so for him, trying to recover some of the historical details around Christmas and the infancy narratives also helps us kind of maybe like rediscover some of the the real political economic details around our current situation. So that's what we're going to try to start out here a little bit. There's a ton of detail in the book um, that maybe we won't get into in this episode, maybe in a future one. Uh, He does so much really interesting work on like, who is King Herod and what's he's what what's he about? Who's Caesar and what's that about? What's the relation between those two powers? You know, like uh, what are maybe some of the the prophetic traditions feeding into the infancy narratives? So there's a ton of detail, but I think for this episode we'll we'll stay at maybe the the general level of like how we even read something like the Bible and the Christmas text and what historical criticism can sort of do to like maybe inform uh, a kind of more um, directly political use of that text uh, in the Christmas season in 2023. That's right. It's time to join the war on Christmas, but on the side of Christmas, <laughs> finally. <laughs> Coming to, de- to liberate Christmas from the war altogether, maybe. Um, man, it's so funny to read this um, text about uh, how radical the the infancy narrative is and how radical the idea of Christmas is or how, how radical that story is, like what what's all behind it. And then think of like all of the ways that it, just like he says, Christmas like out here in the regular world is completely bourgeois, is completely a fantasy. It's just like meaningless, stupid consumerism. Um, so I'm here. Let's bust, let's bust this one out. We're going to get rid of all of the, uh, <laughs> we're busting Christmas out of jail finally. <laughs> Um, all right, before we get to the good stuff, the exciting stuff, the truly liberating Christmas story, um, I do think that it's worth talking about some of the maybe like more boring details around historical criticism. I say boring because it like depends on having a kind of dry conversation around how we read the Bible, (laughs) but, uh, I actually don't think it's that boring. I think it's actually very cool. Uh, so maybe that'll be our challenge, Matt, to try to make uh, historical criticism interesting in the next uh, 40 minutes. Um, but one thing maybe to get on the table right away is talking about what historical criticism is at all. And maybe that'll set us up a little bit. So uh, when we talk about historical criticism, we're talking about a particular way of reading the Bible, a particular hermeneutical strategy that really emerges, especially in kind of some German Protestant traditions, but not only them. Uh, It sort of comes out of like enlightenment or scientific culture and it tries to get to the the historical reality behind the text or that makes the biblical text possible and it does that in a critical way so for example you know let's say the catholic church traditionally reads the bible in this particular way or it reads this story in this certain way to kind of i don't know do whatever (laughs) come up with a doctrine based some kind of doctrine in the bible etc And the Protestant critical move is to be like, well, let's not take the tradition's word for that. Let's actually see what's going on there. And as we'll see, I think there are like some good things about that and also some things that hold it back. Uh, But that's the basic idea is could we kind of 
try as best we can to get rid of some of our our ideas or prejudices that we have when we come to the text and sort of just figure out what's really happening, which is actually a really complicated thing to do and ultimately kind of impossible, but maybe a fun reading experiment anyway that gets you somewhere. Uh, the problem with it or kind of the, the problem if you're a practicing Christian with this method is that it can really like erode your faith in Christianity, right? If you're like, completely deconstructing the text and you find out that, okay, the text says this one thing, but in fact, I know from history that this is not historically how it went. Or let's say the text says this or that about, I don't know, like how many, how many innocents were ordered to be killed by Herod and how many actually did have, did get killed or what the census was really like in Rome versus how Christmas kind of tells that story, all these kinds of things. Like, it could lead you to distrust the text or kind of tear apart the the foundations of your faith. And that's a really interesting kind of problem that Richard Horsley begins his chapter with is what are you supposed to do when you kind of, on the one hand, appreciate that you want to, to reconstruct the reality of what's happening behind the text, but also you're kind of like, but I do want to still be a Christian. And he goes through a bunch of different strategies that Christians have tried to kind of bridge that gap uh, but I think it's a, an interesting problem, you know, it's and it's not only unique to the Bible. It's like we can do that with all kinds of other things in our lives. You know, when you kind of come to the so-called reality of a situation and it doesn't quite measure up to like your experience of that thing, but you're still attached to it for one reason or another, even good reasons. How do you kind of reconcile those those things? Um, so anyway, that's kind of the 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 bit here. He's trying to figure out with respect to Christmas, how do we both be kind of open to the historical realities in that narrative um, and also like authentic and honest about what it means to be a Christian who is sort of open to that stuff. Does that sound right, man? Am I, <laughs> am I getting it right so far? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the um, historical criticism is like a very valuable tool. You're right. I think that's all totally true. And the way that Horsey's going uh, about it is I think a particularly good way, right? Like, you know, how do you still be a confessing Christian um, in light of it, or like, how do you use it to maybe like make your faith better or something? There is a tendency though, to like, I think misuse historical criticism to, um, in, in like particularly like, um, I'm going to use this term in a derogatory sense, modern ways. Uh, there's a really pretty famous movement of people, um, like John Dominic Crossan, um, who do this thing called, you know, the historical Jesus movement, um, and the the goal is to like kind of let the historical criticism have like the last word on the text, which I think is kind of a mistake, um, because how can you really have a last word on the text? I think <laughs> you can always keep you can always just keep going, man. But anyways, um, you know they they uh, use particular methods that might be fruitful or not to kind of you know try to get to the bottom of the text, and then they kind of leave it at that and and, and say that things are kind of like done. I guess like the the point is that historical criticism is cool. But it feels like uh, you need to hold it a little bit weakly. Like you can you can take it and do whatever you want with it. But I feel like you have to recognize that uh, there's always more to be done after the fact. And I, I guess that's that's the the place where I have to leave historical criticism behind. Yeah, uh, and there's actually I'm reading this other book by Richard Horsley right now. That's called "You Shall Not Bow Down and Serve Them," which is a really neat reading of the political economy in. Um, Jesus time and around Paul's ministry. And he specifically goes after John Dominic Crossan for uh, basically kind of reducing the Bible or at least Jesus to a character who's pretty convenient for like liberal capitalist society. 
And uh, this is, I think, something I really appreciate about Horsley um, in historical criticism. Most of the time, I don't think this is always true, but most of the time it's kind of associated with liberal theology and also liberal politics and might be a progressive liberalism. Um, it could be, you know, better than other kinds of liberalism for sure and even quite radical. But there is a tendency to maybe like make Jesus conform to modern sensibilities or kind of what we expect or could like what we could stomach maybe in a modern society. And uh, what Horsley does is he says that that kind of reading is actually not even historical enough, because if you really get into the history of the Bible, you find that there's all this other political stuff going on. And that political stuff doesn't square very nicely with modern capitalist society or kind of bourgeois individuality. And in, in one uh, really interesting part of this chapter that we read, he talks a bit about what he calls a hermeneutics of consent, which is one way that um, Protestants have tried to split the difference between, on the one hand, affirming the, the importance of these historical studies, and on the other hand, trying to say that the text has something true to say as well, or kind of makes a claim on you as a reader. Uh, and he says that is an interesting strategy. The idea is to kind of use history to reconstruct the text enough to then kind of create like a bit of a bridge between you know, our situation and the situation of the text and sort of see how to kind of keep making it relevant. And he's like, that kind of approach is good as far as it goes. And it's one way of using historical criticism. It's not super different from how John Dominic Crossan does, for instance. Uh, but he says that kind of approach also, which is maybe more of like a pastoral approach, it too kind of fails to attend to the real historicity of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And what I really like about that reading strategy is Horsley is kind of like calling the bluff of people who are like, history is really important. Like the idea is history is so important that I need to kind of make it the, the controlling reading of how I approach the text. And then I sort of allow my modern life to be in dialogue with that his historical data that I get. Uh, but Horsley says we're so kind of like caught up in bourgeois capitalism that we can't even get to the fact that a real historical reading of the Bible would even call into question that very project of like trying to sort of make the Bible make sense to us as like bourgeois people and uh, a, a deeper kind of historical reconstruction, which is what he tries to do, would even open up further anti-capitalist readings of the text, which I think is actually an extremely cool thing. And again, very similar to Herzog, but there's kind of like almost like this subgroup of biblical scholars who are really informed by liberation theology, really informed by actually existing anti-capitalist movements, who are then going to the Bible in this historical way to discover something more interesting there. And uh, it's, I think it's great. Like, I never learned any of that kind of stuff in graduate school or even doing a, a biblical studies minor in my undergraduate school. So I think it's, I mean, I could be wrong because I never did a Bible degree, but, uh, you know, in, in grad school. But it strikes me that that kind of way of reading a more left-wing historicism is... Uh, not as present. And uh, it seems like something that would be pretty valuable for progressive Christianity these days. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to push the point a little bit further, I'm going to I'm going to jump ahead really quick. We'll still come back to it, I think, in the actual text of the uh, of Horsley's uh, uh, chapter. But within within his chapter, he does talk about this, um, you know, kind of like the way that people will do that uh, hermeneutic of consent and like kind of read themselves into the story in the wrong way. He says that Christians in North America will end up like reading themselves, 
you know, into the story in, in a hermeneutic of consent kind of way, but they'll read themselves into the wrong part of the story. Like, you know, Protestants will think of mainstream Protestant institutions like, I don't know, mainline churches or whatever <laughs> as being pharisaical. And they'll think of themselves, um, you know, free thinking, super evangelical, Bible believing Christians as being like a prophetic Jesus y kind of person calling them out. Right. But the problem with that, uh, as Horsley will tell us in a little bit, is that it it misses the the historical aspect that, you know, the the link between Christians in North America and uh, you know, the the world of <laughs> of like the gospel is not like that. It's that, you know, Christians in North America are, are more like citizens of Rome, <laughs> just in general. Mm-hmm. So it's just that we we draw these wrong connections because we also like want to put ourselves in into the story and we don't we're not always good uh, at understanding where we belong in the story or you know we lack the political education to understand where we are in the story so we just put ourselves you know as the heroes when we're actually <laughs> the uh the villains yeah i mean that's something i really find interesting about the text too is he criticizes a few different what he calls individualistic ways of uh of creating analogies in the bible i think that's one of them it's almost like he doesn't use this term but it strikes me as kind of the the natural narcissism of bourgeois capitalism like if it yeah it makes all of us like read things as though they're ultimately about us because it's a sort of individualized society and especially under neoliberalism where it all uh, revolves around building your personal authentic identity and brand kind of you know that is totally unique to you it's natural to kind of find your place in the parts of the bible that you want to be <laughs> like, you know, you want to be the person who is related to the the ministry of Jesus, like calling out the powers that be and so on, which is a good impulse. Uh, but that kind of thing can also obscure where your actual social or political position might be with respect to both the kind of analogy of the, the biblical text in our own time. Um, he also talks about these kind of psychological ways of reading the Bible, which is maybe more popular among like liberal Protestantism. So, for example, like. You know, liberal Protestants uh, that take history as kind of a controlling narrative or, or take so-called like modern scientific readings as controlling hermeneutics, they might be particularly nervous about uh, maybe the more like magic-y or supernatural parts of the Bible. So, for example, when you get to a doctrine like the incarnation of Christ, uh, there's this way of, of reading that story or reading that idea or doctrine that kind of psychologizes it so that when you read that, it's more about how do we make God kind of born in us or how do we make the self kind of born in us? And he has this really funny kind of line where he says uh, modern, some modern Christians, they do basically the exact same thing that ancient Christians did where ancient Christians would reread the Bible through the lens of Plato. So Plato is kind of the controlling metaphysic. And then you like push the Bible through that and you find all kinds of ways of reading the text that confirm a Platonic way of viewing the world. But he said today we're not Platonists. Instead, you might be a Freudian. So like you read the Bible and you discover all these psychological categories that help kind of make sense of, I don't know, your self formation or subject formation. It's sort of like the self helpification of the Bible or something like that. And uh, Mm -hmm. that is definitely true of many liberal Protestant theologians. And he says the irony is that this way of reading is premised on a historical and scientific worldview. But he says, if you're really looking at the history of what's happening in the story of the incarnation, you're really actually encountering 
a, a story about the liberation of an entire people. You're not encountering a kind of psychological manual for like, I don't know, deep spiritual transformation. You're encountering a story about a hope for a material liberation from a condition of, you know, military occupation, economic exploitation, and so on. And uh, I actually think that's such a cool challenge to be like, if you really take the history seriously, you're going to have to talk about, you know, social and political stuff. And uh, capitalism just kind of constantly tries to subvert our own instincts for that because of our position in the global economic chain. A great example of this is a person who I kind of, I have like a, maybe a, a historical connection to in my own life. And not that I knew him or anything, but John Shelby Spong is like a theologian who always makes me think of this particular, like weird dynamic. Yeah. Um, I read him a lot in my undergrad and I thought he was like really radical for, for some reasons. And looking back on it, it's like such a bizarre thing to think. John Shelby Spong is sort of like one of these. Yeah, he is like a historical criticism kind of guy when it comes to the Bible. And he wrote like lots of popular books around it. But like what's so weird about him is he is he was an Episcopal priest. And he was also like, you know, he was an Episcopal priest that basically did not believe in any of like the magical stuff about Christianity. He was a and, bishop even, right? I thought or something. Yeah, that's right. He was. Yeah, he was a bishop in the, in the Episcopal church. Um, and I guess like. He died in 2021, in case anyone cares. Um, <laughs> maybe you don't. But I guess, like, what's, what always, what strikes me as such a weird thing about it is that, like, you know, in his books, he would, like, kind of go out of his way to tell you the historical reasons, you know, uh, uh, whatever they might have been about why, like, why or how the the more magical stuff in the book, in, in the Bible, oh, my gosh, how the more magical stuff in the Bible can be kind of, like, discarded as, like, sort of mythological and, like, understood in these different ways. And I guess, like, what's so frustrating is that <laughs> it was never to sort of towards a radical end, like, in terms of, like, capitalism. It was always, like, towards just, like, you don't have to believe in any of this, like, weird magical stuff. <laughs> and it's just, like, so frustrating <laughs> to actually think about um, that, like, you know, the, the the end point for some of the historical criticism is that, like, well, you just don't really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You just, and, and like, that's it. Rather than believing, like, I don't know the abolition of capitalism or something <laughs> just such a <laughs> such a bizarre direction to head that uh, but it's a, a great example of maybe like the limits of that way of thinking or how we can kind of bring that type of liberalism into the bible and understanding it historically or misunderstanding it or whatever right there's uh, another cool thing about horsley's work that i think is uh an important critical word for lots of people to hear definitely myself too which is that the way we read the bible is uh also kind of taking a side in global political struggle. So, for example, like when uh, when you do historical criticism and, you know, the outcome is is that that whatever you just kind of strip your life of metaphysical beliefs, which is like fine. I, I mean, I don't fault people for feeling that way either. Like <laughs> it's a weird thing to believe in all this weird stuff. And that's fair. Completely <laughs> intellectually honest opinion to have. Uh, but if the the end result is that you don't believe in any of that stuff, but you still like go to work and you're just kind of a basically normal person who pays your taxes like everybody else and like, I don't know, votes for Democrats and so on. Then at the end of the day, like all you've really done is kind of become an accomplice to capitalism. So you've emptied out a spiritual meeting and you've also kind of emptied out the challenge, the social pol or political challenge of the text. And Horsley, I think, does a, a really interesting thing by saying uh, if you kind of do allow the text to speak for itself, one of those irritations that you referred to earlier, Matt, might be that, you know, we just can't have the economic system that we have or that 
if we want to follow the kind of uh, trajectory that's opened up by the Bible, you know, whether or not we kind of take on the the supernatural stuff, um, that is also going to raise important questions about the ethical economic system that we have. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, uh, at the very least, like, I think there's a reason that maybe somebody like John Dominic Crossan or uh, or John Shelby Spong are kind of the the people who have be, have become popular in historical criticism, whereas maybe folks like Herzog and Horsley are more at least I don't see them as like as popular of authors uh, because it's maybe a harder word to hear or it like it's a historical reading that demands a, a deeper change. Um both in your maybe individual relationship to politics, but also politics itself. I think that's a really important, um, not just academic challenge, but kind of a challenge to Christians who want to get serious about the Bible. Well, let's get serious about the Bible ourselves by um, <laughs> diving into the the later half of his, uh, of Horsley's essay, um, A Liberating Christmas Story. I want to read a bit of it here because I think it's pretty cool and worth just kind of getting it out here on the table. Um, so I'm going to start right here at the beginning. Uh, Horsley writes, the infancy narratives are about liberation. The birth of the Christ child means that God has inaugurated the long-awaited deliverance of the people of Israel from their enemies. More precisely, God has begun to free the people from domination and exploitation by the imperial ruler and from their own rulers, particularly the tyrannical king. The people's liberation evokes brutal repression and involves suffering, but the dominant tone is one of relief and excitement as the people respond readily to God's initiative. Starting here is a good place, I think, um, that infancy narratives are about liberation because at, at Christmas we found so many ways to read about the birth of Jesus as something that is like purely spiritual or maybe has a social element to it, but like not, you know, not too much. It's, it's about peace and goodwill towards all people. But like, you know, it, that just means that when you're um, when you're at the Black Friday sale, you're not going to like punch somebody in the face for <laughs> Uh, the new Game Boy or whatever. <laughs> it means that, you know, it, it's just, um, it, it, it's a uh, peace and goodwill, but not that much. Um, just a sort of, I'm just thinking of the movie Jingle All the Way, where it's just a whole <laughs> 90 minutes of Arnold Schwarzenegger fighting Sinbad for a toy. Yeah. Man, I love that movie. <laughs> it's great. Oh, but, but, anyways, about instead of being any of that stuff, it's, uh, it's about liberation, right? Primarily, it's about a new political order being birthed into the world. And uh, that's, I think a lot more radical than anyone's Christmas pageant uh, gives room for. <laughs> uh, man, this is a complete and total aside, but you mentioned Jingle All the Way, so now I have to say it. Um, last year, I was in Cuba during Christmas with my wife, and we were stuck at this resort waiting to get on our plane that was maybe, we were maybe going to get picked up and maybe not because our airline messed up all their stuff, and so we were just kind of like hanging out. We had to like stick close, and uh, <laughs> we were watching TV, which is very funny. TV in Cuba is everything about it's hilarious. One minute you're like switching the channel and there's like uh, Nicholas Maduro and he's doing a big Christmas pageant. And then like you change the channel again. And there is, we found jingle all the way all in Spanish, which was <laughs> something else. But the best part is the whole movie is dubbed except for Arnold Schwarzenegger's like weird Arnold Schwarzenegger noises. So you'll get like the Spanish Arnold Schwarzenegger doing his whole thing. And then eventually you'll just hear like, pure uncut, not redubbed Arnold Schwarzenegger doing a big yell. And uh, I do love that. I appreciate that. They're really doing the movie service. They're they're leaving all the artistic merit intact, and that's really important. Thank you, Cuba. Some some things you just can't translate, you know. Yeah, uh, that's right. Speaking though of things you can't translate, <laughs> how's this for a great segue, Matt? Um, 
The uh, the other cool thing, though, about what Horsley does is as he's kind of talking about this liberation story, casting the the text as a story of liberation, he also says that there are kind of certain social positions that make you more readily able to kind of hear the story in that liberating way than others. So we've already talked a little bit about how being in North America maybe like prepares you to cast yourself into the text by analogy in a way that might sort of not quite be right or like you don't find yourself in the the same spot and we saw this a lot with Herzog as well right like when you read uh the parable of the talents you might kind of assume that the king in that story is god or the landowner is god or whatever and everybody else i don't know you kind of plot where you're supposed to end up um because that's i don't know just the way that we kind of are conditioned to read things in capital societies on the position from the position of oppressors that <laughs> the person with all the power must be God. And we kind of theologize accordingly. Um, but just like with Herzog, uh, Horsley says that the, the real way to kind of identify what's going on in the text is to, to find people who are having similar economic and political experiences and kind of see how they're reading the text. And uh, Horsley, you guessed it, does turn to our favorites in Nicaragua, the Gospel in Salentiname, and reads uh, their accounts of Christmas and kind of what's going on in order to, to make this argument that actually if you share the social position of the poor in the Bible, the kind of liberating themes automatically suggest themselves to you in a different way. So here's what he writes about it. Those in the present likely to find themselves particularly addressed by these stories are people of similar life circumstances. People dominated and exploited by local or foreign rulers are the ones likely to discern that these biblical stories illuminate their own situation and experiences. The campesinos of Salentiname, Nicaragua, under the rule of Somoza, provide a vivid illustration. By contrast, North American society generally has moved away from its earlier identification with and celebration of the birth of the Christ child or strikingly domesticated adaptable parts of the Christmas story into a festival of gift-giving consumption legitimated and motivated primarily by the symbol of Santa Claus. Vast numbers of North Americans living in a culture no longer familiar with the Bible as people's history have little sense of how the stories behind Christmas could be about the deliverance of an oppressed people. Thus, it may be useful to explore the liberative function of the infancy narratives as memory or history for basic Christian communities focusing particularly on the process of conscientization or consciousness raising that takes place in many of these small Latin American communities of the poor. And he closes by saying, in the process, some interesting points of difference will emerge between the attitudes and approaches of established European and North American biblical studies and those of the basic Christian communities. Uh, I really like this point, not just because he points to people that we really like, uh, the, the Sandinista experience of reading the Bible and so on, but also because I think there's a tendency in historical criticism to be like, once you sort of get the academic stuff right, then you don't really need life experience to sort it out for you either. And that's kind of the last mm. word. You know, it's like you, you get the method and that gives you the truth. And what's cool about Horsley is that he identifies that there's kind of a shared living situation happening here. And the idea is to... Um, to be open to a variety of tools that open up the text. So in some cases, those tools might be language analysis or historical data or archaeology or whatever. But another important tool, as important at these, as these other tools, is looking at the experience of people in a similar social position and seeing what resonates. And, I mean, you see that in the Gospel in Salantaname over and over, right? Like uh, even the, the parable of the talents, as we read when we were looking at the Herzog stuff, 
Um, Christians in North America love to kind of see the the guy who buries the talent as the bad guy, and that's the moral story. Um, in the Gospel in Salantanami, when they read that story, they are under no illusion about like who's good and who's bad in that. They know the landowner is bad. They see the guy burying the talent as kind of dropping out of an oppressive system. And these are people who have no training in historical method or like, you know, they didn't go to Bible school to kind of learn all the latest like archaeological data. They just kind of mm. readily understood the text as a liberating story and uh, that, you know, allows them to see it differently. And I think that is such an important contribution to sort of see scholarship and kind of closer readings of the text as fundamentally in dialogue with people's movements in a way that is like constitutively useful and not just like an add on or kind of a cool trivial thing. Yeah, I like the phrase in dialogue with people's movements. And I think that comes out in maybe this next this next bit here. I'll read um, historical criticism stuff. It's good, right? You have to know all the facts and that kind of stuff. That's fine for sure. But there's also a sense in which like being in this particular position socially and, you know, in terms of like economics and the world, the world system of capitalism or whatever, it lets the text act on you in different ways, I think is really interesting. Um, So Horsley says, in contrast to oppressed people's internalized sense of subjection to and dependency on their masters, the infancy narratives present a striking case of God's dealing directly with ordinary people. The divine will and action, moreover, is for their own liberation, not their further oppression. If ordinary people are valued by God, then perhaps they can value themselves. The ordinary people in the infancy narratives, moreover, display no deference to their rulers and have no apparent anxieties or hesitations about their own imminent liberation. The people in the birth narratives thus become paradigms or prototypes for later readers or hearers, seeing that God helped earlier people who ventured to assert their freedom they come to believe that God will help them as well and are able to take action in shaping their own lives. What I like about this insight is that it does recognize that the text is not just historical. It's not something that happened, but there is uh, a sense in which there's a promise for the future. And the promise for the future, I mean, it's like, it not it's not necessarily 100% magical in the way that like evangelicalism might make you think. And And I guess what I mean by that, like, you know, evangelicalism has this whole sort of cosmology about Jesus. Uh, he comes, he dies, he rises again, and then we know that he's going to come back, right? There's, and that's like maybe this like sort of like extremely spiritual and uh, theological way of thinking about it. And there's something here, though, that's happening that's kind of interesting, that it's not just about like um, God doing all of the work and like coming in this like spiritual way, but it's about a real overturning of the entire world. And doing it through people and like with people rather than just like a thing that we hope happens someday or something. Right. It gives people, uh, it gives oppressed people a real agency in the story that you don't get in other types of theology. Um, so when you think about it through this particular lens, you get something far more active than you would otherwise. Right. It's, it's not just about getting the right interpretation, but also kind of allowing the text to even empower you and, and allowing that interpretation to have a, a material effect in the world. And that's kind of the, the hermeneutical challenge of liberation is to see those themes, um, not just to get them right, but to like make them useful. Um, he goes on to say, uh, as has been noted by reflective participants in the discussions of communities of the poor, and as can be readily observed in Cardinal's transcripts from Salantaname, the people readily relate or even mix biblical stories, events, or figures with their own lives and circumstances and vice versa. They are Mary or the Christ child or the shepherds. 
Herod's killing of the children is is Samosa's National Guard turned loose on fellow Nicaraguans, or they are in bondage in Egypt. Biblical stories are history for the people, but are also reflections or portrayals of their own lives and situations. And I think what's interesting about this is how different that kind of analogy making is to the sort of like hermeneutics of consent that we talked about earlier, where, you know, you read yourself into the the incarnation. So it's like Christ has to be born in me or myself has to be born in myself, which, by the way, is not like an awful thing. I don't think it's like bad necessarily to also have more mystical readings of the text and so on. Um, but uh, this kind of analogizing is trying to take seriously that there's a political reality that we can't kind of like cordon off the Bible to just our faith life, which is like separate from everything else where like religion is kind of safe in its own private sphere. And then there's politics over here and economics over there. But instead in the Bible, you get this sort of, um, you know, total vision or more integrated vision, I guess is maybe a better way of putting it. And the kind of analogies that the gospel and Solentaname are making are more integral. Like they're taking into account a broader vision of how the Bible might relate to them and vice versa. And that's also the kind of thing that you get when you're reading the Bible in a situation of like urgency or revolution, as opposed to maybe the the kind of privilege to like play around with the psychological possibilities in the text. Yeah, definitely. Well, pushing that point a bit forward, um, we can kind of get to the uh, the bit we've already talked about, but we'll, we'll read Horsley's take on it. Horsley writes, how might North Americans learn to read the liberating story of Christ's birth and begin to discern how it might illumine our situation? Because we have become so distant historically, socially, economically, politically, and religiously from birth narratives, historical criticism may indeed have an important role in preparation for discernment. One of the ways that has been developed to deal with the historical distance is the principle of dynamic analogy. In interpreting biblical statements such as prophecies or the teachings of Jesus, for example, one would apply the message to those dynamically equivalent of those challenged in the text. If this principle of dynamic analogy can be expanded in scope and complexity to deal with the Bible, not only as word, but as history as well. So this is interesting, though. It's, uh, reading the Bible is a way of maybe understanding the world differently as a person in North America. Like, you know, we we have already kind of talked about a few different times, a few different times about the ways that, you know, you could as a North American Christian read yourself into the Bible in the wrong way. But this is interesting because it's about uh, reading the Bible to know the world differently. And I think that's, um, I don't know, it's it's a good take. Uh, that does something quite different with the text than I think we're used to used to hearing. Like, it's not just a story about, like, uh, the historical stuff that happened, like, with regards to Jesus or something. But it's, like, uh, it's also a way to know, I, I think, like, other, I don't know, other trends or other other ways that people are in the world. I think that's right. I mean, the like we mentioned, like when you kind of read into the Bible from the position of being in an imperial situation, you're also just going to construct that analogy differently and allow it to maybe construct your own perspective differently. And here's where I think actually there's something really uniquely helpful about Horsley's reading here. Um, I'll read this passage that he uh maybe experiments with a little bit and then um, say something about it. He says the extension here and broad analogy to the infancy narratives is from the recognition that the United States can no longer pretend to be God's new Israel to the realization that it has apparently become the new Rome. Once we recognize the imperial position of the U S and the dynamic historical analogy, it may be possible to discern important facets of the present day Caesar's rule 
through a fresh reading of the infancy narratives, informed additionally from our historical critical reconstruction of their broader context. Thus, we can discern that the equivalent of Caesar's decree that all the world should be laid under tribute is North American economic exploitation of smaller countries. And just as Caesar sent in the legions to enforce Rome's extraction of tribute, so U.S. military power is used to protect investments, profit, and trade. One of the purposes of Rome's economic exploitation of subject peoples was to provide the bread and circus necessary to keep the Roman mobs under control. Moreover, just as Rome dominated through client rulers such as Herod, so the U.S. maintains its interests and influence through governments, often military, that it designates and supports, like Somoza. Pressing the analogy to greater complexity, we can see our own equivalent to the ancient Roman religious ideology of peace established by the imperial savior. Democracy, development, or progress are the blessings of the free world established and dominated by U.S. military power. Uh, I think this is actually genuinely useful because, like I said, there's always like a a temptation to try to see yourself in the position of the the good people in the Bible, you know, the the liberating people in the Bible. But it's it's helpful also to be like, maybe I actually live in the empire. And what would this mean uh, as a person kind of reading it in the position of empire? Um, there is a, a really interesting story. One time I was talking to uh, a coworker of mine, Luke Stocking, who sometimes listens to this podcast. So I guess I'm going to test and find out if he's listening to this episode. Uh, he was telling me he was telling me this story about uh, a priest that he knew who was talking a bit about liberation theology. And he was saying, we like to imagine that liberation theology is for us because we like liberation and we want to participate in it and we support it and so on. And so we when we read something like the Exodus narrative, we we tend to read ourselves into the struggle for liberation but when it comes to being a reader in the first world or the global north, uh, when we read the Exodus story, we should actually be developing a, a theology of what it means to be Pharaoh or what is the Bible saying about Pharaonic power and so on. And I think that's actually just kind of that, that example comes to mind for me, because at any point when you're kind of reading the text, the Bible is offering maybe like clues or hints or even like prompts for thinking about the dynamics of liberation and oppression. So in the Christmas story, it might be Rome and Herod and the incarnation of Christ as the liberator. In you know the Exodus story, it might be Pharaoh and Moses and all these other kind of things that are going on. But there are these, there's like a variety of way of kind of imagining the dialectic between empire and liberation that kind of runs throughout the Bible. And if we had maybe as a, a hermeneutic experiment of trying to read ourselves into the the position of the oppressor, how might that challenge our own kind of readings? How would it deepen our own analysis of empire from within the imperial core? You know, would we discover kind of recurring patterns and habits? And Horsley obviously thinks, yes, we do. And I think that's also kind of an interesting way of like, maybe trying to really honestly like wrestle with what does it mean to be a citizen of, you know, some of the most powerful empires in the history of the world, whether it's the US or Canada or the UK. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not the same as like, reading the Christmas story from on the other side of like Samoza's rule or something like that. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's such a funny idea to be, you know, to think about the Christmas story and the ways that we read ourselves into it for sure. But uh, in this other way of thinking that Horsley gives us, it's like, well, the way you read yourself in to it is to recognize that you're not even in the same country, that you're the person right. that lives across, <laughs> across the ocean who's benefiting from the oppression of this other country altogether. Right. It's just like, um, altogether you're, you're not even on the same continent as Jesus or something. It's just, uh, just crazy. 
Yeah, I well, mean, especially to, right now, like, just to make a more direct analogy, you know, like, Israel's bombing Palestine, and it's, like, in literally the geographical area where this story right. takes place, you know, this is happening today, right? Israel is kind of, like, a client state in many ways of U.S. empire. I mean, it's it, it has its own imperial ambitions as well, but uh, it's just kind of interesting to think about, like, what are the kind of parallels that are happening, and how do they open us up to really thinking on a, a grander scale about how the, the Christmas story provides analogies to, to our own time. And, you know, something Palestinian Christians are always saying is like every year the Christians around the world are like obsessed with this event that happened in Palestine 2000 years ago. And like none of them know anything about what's happening in Palestine right now. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, that's the the challenge that Horsley puts before us as well is as we draw those analogies, it's kind of like, where do we actually find the Christmas story of liberation really sort of, you know, drawing our attention toward and, and how do we place ourselves in that? Yeah. Here, well, let's run into the conversation with, uh, with the conclusion of Horsley's chapter here. Uh, I'm going to skip around a little bit through this paragraph, but it's a, uh, it's a strong ending, I think. So he writes the current celebration of Christmas now appears to take place in a fantasy land, a magical fairy tale world, which no one takes too seriously. Of course, Whereas Enlightenment reason was driven to criticize the stories of Christ's birth and other biblical myths as part of the traditional forms of authoritarian domination, few today are bothered by the new forms of myth and magic. The later are forms of domination no less than they were the biblical revelation of, of the Christian theological doctrines attacked by Enlightenment rationalists. If they are not effective in inducing massive retail spending from Thanksgiving to Christmas, then manufacturers and retailers would hardly utilize them so extensively in costly advertising in the communication media. Perhaps the fact that these new forms of myth and magic help keep the economy humming tends to mitigate any discomfort over the manipulation and domination involved. Okay. That's all very interesting. I love it. I, Christmas as a, as a weird fantasy land is like good and true. And that's kind of what a lot of people like about Christmas. I mean, I kind of like it about Christmas. I like it too. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but also uh, recognizing the political economy of it all is good. And um, maybe making the, the fantasy world seem bad is probably worthwhile. Um, <laughs> but then here's the, uh, here's the conclusion. The infancy narratives of Jesus, on the other hand, once freed from the domesticating cultural context of, quote, the holidays and the rationalist dismissal as myth, can be read again as stories of people's liberation from exploitation and domination. The people who may respond most immediately are probably those whose situation is similar to that portrayed in the stories. But for the modern day citizens of Rome, uncomfortable of their intricate involvement in the web of new forms of domination, they also offer a challenge and inspiration to regain control of their own lives in response to God's liberating initiative in the birth of Jesus. I think the last part is really powerful uh, because all that stuff's going on in the back in the background, but um, you have to recognize the the what the good news is is not <laughs> is not uh, getting a new Game Boy for Christmas, even though you might like that. The good news is that. There's a whole different world to be one. Um, and the infancy narrative about Jesus is the, the kind of inauguration of that world. And sometimes progressive Christians will say that in like a social justice kind of way. But let me be explicit. I'm saying in a liberation sort of way, <laughs> <laughs> in a socialist kind of way, I guess. Um, but it, it's interesting because uh, this particular telling of the story that Horsley gives us here at the end it kind of flips it. It's not about social justice necessarily. I mean, it is in the grand scheme. I guess I'm using the word social justice derogatorily, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it, it's about like 
it's about an end to empire. It's about um, recognizing like the ways that we are deeply embroiled within an, an imperialist world. We're dependent on the exploitation of other people. And uh, the infancy narrative of Jesus tells us that like that should be over. That's done. We should seek some kind of liberation instead. And uh, I think it's, yeah. it's a pretty good word. Um, it's the Christmas I would like to celebrate. That's right. So I feel like there's two options at the end of this. Either you can continue the war on Christmas, which is a completely valid and important uh, protracted people's war for sure. Um, Or also uh, you could alternatively try to keep the Christ in Christmas, which is to say demand an end to all imperial action everywhere. I think both are, you know, of a piece. They're both the same struggle. And uh, I think you just have to kind of choose which one uh, which one fits better in your particular uh, (laughs) imperial holiday season this year. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds good. Well, uh, as always, we're left with two two different options, and I'm going to take the politically correct one and just say happy holidays. Um, <laughs> go, go ahead and do your own thing. Uh, no, nah, just kidding. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, you can get into a really cool discord. We're going to talk about all kinds of Christmas stuff. I'm sure in the coming months, there's been a lot of great articles there about Palestine and trying to work all that out among lots of other things happening. Uh, somebody posted a video of a German priest rapping recently, which was, uh, that was me. Really I posted that, video. that was you. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the bonus content that people are willing to pay for. And, uh, I think that you should be too. Um, you know what? Also, I'm going to do this last Christmas plug for G's magazine, which we should have done at the beginning of the episode. But if you made it this far, I guess uh, now you be, providentially you have to hear this uh, this quick pitch. Um, G's is great. It makes a good Christmas gift. You can subscribe to it right now for yourself or for a good friend. And it has a sliding scale and everything. And you really ought to do it. It's really important. It's a great uh, publication and everybody should want it to continue. So go do that. Go subscribe to that. Uh, Our music is by Amari Armstrong. The outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning. Souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.